Welcome to The Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution, with knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength. This podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity and how organizations will need to manage, secure, protect and organize intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new age of trust by Verizon. organization doing business globally at the moment, complying with local regulations in a world where there's fast moving changes with both the technology and the law, having a regulatory framework that makes sense in different regions is hugely important. This happens at the same time as we're looking more and more at our own sovereign capabilities, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity and the way we create products for ourselves, but also for the rest of the world. Today's discussion is really going to talk about the global environment and that fast-changing regulation and the way we build technology for global audiences, but also how we're building it here at home in Australia. In a small population, we're building for global markets, so we need to be thinking about what we need here locally and how we can also build for scale. Joining me on the Age of Trust podcast today is Michelle Price. Michelle is well known to many people in the cybersecurity sector. And more widely than that, I would add as well. Uh, Michelle is the CEO of OzCyber, which is one of the industry growth centres focused on unlocking and unleashing Australian capability in cybersecurity and taking those companies to the rest of the world. I'd also like to welcome MJ Salia. MJ Salia has had an extensive career in Verizon, but both before Verizon in a number of roles where she's been chief legal counsel throughout what people would say is a, a really busy time of lots of change, particularly where technology meets the law. So at the moment, as Chief Legal Counsel, MJ Salia works with the global Verizon team to make sure that the products that are built for all parts of the global market are built with understanding the regulatory requirements early in that phase. And it's a really important role that's being run out of Australia. And so with that in mind, I'd like to welcome both Michelle and MJ to the podcast today for what I am sure will be a very interesting discussion. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Michelle, can you just give us a quick overview of cyber and what you're seeing right now in terms of where our crop of emerging cyber companies are, how they're building for global markets and where are the bright spots that you're seeing? Thanks. So it's so good to be with you. I think that most listeners would be aware that we are growing an industry within Australia at the moment. That's what Cyber is charged with doing. It's our job on behalf of the country to grow a dynamic and globally competitive cybersecurity industry. And we're doing that for two reasons. One is because obviously, like all nations, we need to make sure that we have sovereign capability available to be able to protect and defend both the country's interests, but also our community. But the other side of it too, is that in cybersecurity with the sort of huge growth that is going on around the world, that big demand that we're seeing exponentially continue to grow, to use your words, around cybersecurity products and services, there is a huge economic opportunity for Australia as much as there is for other nations in the world that have globally competitive capabilities to provide the global market. 
And so that's both in terms of revenue and jobs, but much more than that, it also helps to underpin and assure the future growth of the economy. Cybersecurity is obviously one of those horizontal enablers that impacts every sector of the economy, but also has the benefit of having a relationship with the everyday person as well, whether that everyday person is literally not even born yet, right through to people who are just about to pass on from the world. So, you know, this is something that is so intrinsic to our lives. And we've now got over 350 Australian sovereign cybersecurity companies in Auscyber's portfolio. We have seen a rapid maturing of those companies. So, when we started in 2017, you know, we had around about 80 companies in the country. A lot of those companies are actually at the mature end of the scale. They'd been around for a really long time in that infosec space. And then we saw an explosion, if you like, a comparative explosion in Australia of startups. And a lot of those startups now have moved across in the last two years from being just startups to being early stage companies that are taking on customers, that are delivering and expanding to markets. So we're really seeing, seeing that vibrancy start to develop. And MJ, you, I think, sort of started your career at Aussie Mail a long time ago and then uh, through, can you give us a, a just an overview of where you started and where the role is today? And I mean, it's a very big question to us, but what you're doing right now is a long way from Aussie Mail, but it's been a, a continuum of sorts as well. Yeah, it, uh, it sure has. And so I do like to say I started my career in the internet last century and I guess I was really lucky. The CFO for Aussie Mail at the time back in 1996 was a CFO that I had worked with in a previous company and they were looking for their first in-house counsel. So I had an interview with Malcolm Turnbull, which was really just a really congenial cup of tea at his table and got the job. So became the inaugural and only, I guess, general counsel for Aussie Mail. So at the time I started, it was an Australian exploding, you know, ISP and our biggest game was beating Telstra, you know, to the top of the internet service provider list in Australia. And it was the Wild West, I guess. At that time, there were people dining out in law firms saying, we've got all the laws we need to deal with the internet. And I guess time proved that was a fairly short-sighted stance. But working with Peter Cronius and the Internet Industry Association to really shape the landscape as, as much as we could back then. The government was, I think, caught a little bit on the hop and weren't really sure how to, you know, treat these very, very fast-moving wild cowboys that were taking advantage of this great new medium, which is obviously underpins almost everything that we do today. So it was an Australian company. It was, yeah, so exciting times. Then UUNet, which would tag themselves as being the world's first business internet service provider, a US company was looking for a platform from which to launch their business in Asia. And uh, UUNet was a, a sort of a serendipitous acquisition by WorldCom, who actually ha had another target in mind, but UUNet just happened to be hanging on to the target that they bought. So UUNet was looking for Asian headquarters, um, spied Aussie Mail, so completed a friendly takeover of Aussie Mail in 1999. And then from there, it kind of accelerated to just to do the corporate history. Obviously, UUNet and WorldCom really focused on data and voice and UUNet on internet, but WorldCom quickly realized that internet was really everything. And so after a lot of channel conflict between the same company underbidding themselves to the lowest price for the same customers, they realized that that was a ridiculous way to run a business. And so UUNet became WorldCom. Obviously, we all know WorldCom for reasons that we'd rather not, being the world's biggest bankruptcy. And then we emerged from that bankruptcy as MCI, 
and we got bought by Verizon. And so through all of that, I have almost sat not really in the same spot, but around about in St. Leonard's, which is where Aussie Mail started and is still today. I negotiated the lease of the building that we still sit in today, um, 20 years later. And my role has gone from being a general counsel of an ISP to becoming part of a global business. Initially, I was just responsible for Asia and Australia commercially. And I think just sort of fell into the regulatory role because of my previous history of running around talking to governments and whatever about how ISPs should or should not be regulated. And then I went to heading up the Asia legal team. And now I've moved across into the sort of the regular international regulatory product role, looking after the regulatory compliance and other issues with our products in, I guess, all of the markets outside of the US and EU. So yeah, it's been a kind of, I say to myself, oh gosh, I should really move, but it's kind of moved around me. So yeah. It has. It's a really interesting kind of career trajectory. And um, I'd, I'd like to come back to the global role and what are the, the key areas of focus for you. But first, just going back to yourself, Michelle, when we think about, and you gave some fantastic numbers, I think you said 350 cyber companies, and that's grown off a much smaller base in a very short period of time. As uh, the size of our, our market, inevitably, we need to be building for global markets. So what are the key areas that Oz Cyber might be working with its sort of cohort companies around making sure they are building for a global market, given the differences in that sort of regulatory environment? Yeah, it's a great question. So we do a whole range of different things, both, I guess, outwardly and openly. Those include things like, uh, I guess, the age-old tradition of going and seeing what great could be like. So trade missions. I've led now, I think it's eight or nine trade missions in the last three years to different markets in the world where we see that Australia does have opportunity. It's not just the US. Everyone knows that the US is the biggest market in the world for technology, but they're also one of the biggest producers of technology in the world. And so, of course, it's a very noisy market. So, where where else in the world does Australia have a competitive advantage? And there's, there's many places actually where Australia does have that opportunity. And so, that's kind of, I guess, the most tangible example of the outward-facing programs that we run to help companies understand and sort of really feel what it takes to be able to, you know, as we say, very, very, very proudly in Cyber, you know, build local, deliver global. So that from the very beginnings of how the company starts to form a growth strategy and an investment strategy, they can see what it takes, but, you know, not to be intimidated by that. And that then goes into the stuff that we do behind the scenes with companies to, I guess, in essence, coach them, but coach them in a very informed way on how to really pinpoint where within each kind of market segment they might have opportunity and why they would have that opportunity. The traditional typical journey of a, of a startup to be able to go from zero to hero, everyone wants to be a unicorn. For cybersecurity, that's not actually the case. There's so much that goes into thinking through that market opportunity because in the global economy, but also in the world that we live in that's very geopolitically dynamic, cybersecurity capabilities are not dual-use goods. They're multi-use goods. Every time there is a use case presented for a cyber capability, a malicious actor could turn around and, and split that use case up in a thousand different ways and in ways that we could never imagine, sitting in, in sort of the right side of the law, if you like. And so there's lots and lots of contingencies around what it takes to be great in cybersecurity. So it's really working with the companies very directly. It's very hands-on in terms of helping them to really understand whether or not what they've got, their thing that they think is different to everything else. And of course, you know, lots of startups like to present that their thing is unique. 
without actually taking an account of what the market really looks like, even at home, let alone the rest of the world. So those threads that we pull on with the companies really do start from that position of looking at and knowing what else is available around the world and knowing which capabilities it is okay for us to duplicate what exists elsewhere in the world because of that sovereignty piece, because Australia does need to have its own capabilities in a lot of those areas, not in all areas, but in some areas, it's really important that we do have local capability, even if that capability is being produced in a much more scaled way elsewhere in the world. This is why we do say that the endeavour of cyber and building cyber companies is quite different to a lot of other technology types. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that sovereignty piece, of course, has been sort of top of mind across a range of sectors recently. And it's a, I, I think it will remain a really important topic over the next 12, 24 months in the foreseeable future. Just, you know, as an aside, I got to listen to Justice Michael Kirby the other night at the launch of the Australian Computer Law Society. And it was uh, it was really fascinating to think about his role over a long period of time in the development of the Australian privacy principles and going back at what the role of technology is and how you know the legal frameworks kind of limp along behind. So with that in mind, MJ, and you're looking at a global audience, how do you tackle various levels of maturity in different markets? It sounds like a, a, a massive role. And are there kind of things that you can can talk to that may have you know that may be sort of standouts? Yeah. So just as another aside, speaking of my favourite judge, Justice Kirby, he gave one of the keynote speeches at one of the IIA dinners last century, and it was at the time where you know copyright and well, I mean copyright's still a big issue, I guess. But he gave this. I mean, it really was a, a magnificent, fascinating speech on technology and in relation to copyright, et cetera. But it was really talking about getting back to that sort of ethics question of just because we can, should we, which I think is a thread through a lot of the technology. We're going to see it more and more as to, you know, there's lots of things we can do, but, you know, what should we be doing? Anyway, he spoke for about an hour just fluently. So I just went up afterwards like a little fangirl going, oh, God, you know, Justice Kirby, I love you. You're my favourite judge. I love you, you know. And I saw his little piece of paper and there's like literally like five words in a circle with about four arrows, and that was his basis of his speech. It only made me love him more. I mean, he's just such a, a clever man. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, sovereignty, uh, it was the, the word that Michelle used twice in her introduction and now we've used it several more times. And uh, I have to say, great concept, you know, bane of my life. Whoever gave nations of the world the permission to make completely different laws and regulations, you know, compliances, <laughs> Heaven knows it doesn't make life easy when you're a global company and trying to deliver products which you know are useful globally and necessary globally in every country of the world. And so, of course, you know, for Verizon, we have a very strong security presence in Australia, but we are a global company and our customer base tends to be in the enterprise sector, very large multinational corporations that want to have a trusted provider. I think trust is another word that's going to thread through this conversation a lot and that they can trust to deliver the solutions that they want in the markets where they, you know, where they need to be and in a compliant fashion. So we are a US company. So generally speaking, our product development is done in the US. But having said that, we we have product people globally. You know, they sit in Australia, in Europe, et cetera. But generally speaking, a product gets launched and all of the administrative bits and pieces are done. And then it comes to our team to review. Well, I mean, we're just one of the stakeholders, but obviously the regulatory compliance is a really important part of getting a product 
that can be bought from or delivered to any particular country in the world. So it's, it's hard to say how you get all of it done. I think it's a lot of experience and I've got a lot of, well, not that many, we're a mighty team of five counting me, but lots of years of experience of working out in the markets that we deliver in so that if we don't exactly know what the particular regulations are going to be in respect of a new product, because obviously, well, that's another point, but we at least know the atmosphere of the country. So, so we kind of know where we have to take deeper dives in order to be assured of compliance. And then one of the big problems that I think that we and all companies face today is that you've got very old regulations. You know, a lot of the regulation in our areas is just springs from a telegraph and a telephone, POTS, plain old telephone system. And it hasn't really moved with the times. And and even in countries where they say that they're upgrading their regulations in order to be, you know, technology neutral or it never actually quite seems to work that way. So it's, it is one of the really tricky parts is sort of these new technologies are often have no place in the regulations that you're looking at. They're not even a whisper of a thought in the, the laws that you're trying to comply with. And, you know, so there's a lot of deep thinking, I guess, that has to go into having a feel for what would concern governments that were regulators about the products that you're trying to deliver and then making sure that you have an answer for those concerns to the extent that they exist. So, you know, so for example, in the cyber area, I mean, obviously encryption runs all through it. It's key to secure communications for companies, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, obviously encryption is also a massive barrier for law enforcement and governments of the world to access information that they believe they're entitled to, all governments to some extent. So these are the sorts of things you've got to be thinking about when you're, you know, delivering your products because a happy customer is not necessarily a happy regulator. And uh, there's a balance somewhere in between uh, that you can usually strike, but sometimes it's, I'm sure that Michelle will be smiling about this because, you know, you've been on both sides of the equation, haven't you? Indeed, I have. And, you know, I think for people like us that have the, the breadth of experience, but also the breadth of visibility around what goes on in different markets and how those markets influence, in, in this case, Australia's kind of conduct, if you like, it's actually an area that I really struggle with personally, I have to say. I left mm. government because I was really struggling with that. But in the same way, I struggle with yeah. it being in industry because there's this little old thing at the end of the line called a customer. And when it comes to these kinds of technologies, often the customer at the very end of the line are everyday people who don't necessarily have the knowledge or equipped with the kind of curiosity that the technology creators have. And along that journey, you have a whole series of people that jump in for various reasons, often very good reasons, that kind of end up, you know, sort of muddling the intent, the original intent of why that thing was created. Because most technologists, of course, actually are in the game of what they're in to solve problems. There's, of course, technologists that are in the game because they can see an opportunity to make money, but often that's not the first driver. And so having the sort of end users' behaviours being shaped before they even knew that the technology existed is a really interesting conundrum. And to your point, MJ, we're, we're going to be in this kind of space, this flux for forever, really. And, you know, we, we haven't even started to contend yeah. with what the world's going to look like with quantum technologies. And so 
it's it's really interesting, but I, I, I just hope that we continue to have thoughtful people, to your point, MJ, thoughtful people who really mm. do deeply think through these issues. Yeah, and you've got to have, more to the point, you hope you've got thoughtful regulators that are, you know, that, that want to work for outcomes. And I guess, you know, it's balance and, you know, and the balance is always going to swing. You know, sometimes you're going to feel like the balance is not going in your favor. And, but from my perspective, I think that, you know, I've said previously that I think that over-regulation really stifles innovation because if the regulation is really prescriptive, it just becomes a linear solution. And if you have to comply, if the gov- if, if a regulator tries to tell you how to do something, then I'm saying, you know, it's kind of all over for that creative person who could probably do the same thing in 20 different ways. And I, I guess so in our conversations, you know, we're always trying to say, well, tell us what the outcome is that you want to get to. And then let us especially, you know, there would be areas where we have divergent interests with regulators in that we're looking at the customer and what the customer wants and sometimes what the customer wants, you know, a completely secure communication that can never, ever be, you know, cracked by anybody is not what the government wants. But, but often we may be looking at things that are actually completely aligned with the government. For example, Verizon always wants to have a very secure network. We would pride ourselves on our security profile and And so to have a government say to us, we think you need to secure your network this way and not that way is pretty difficult, especially when you're working globally and, you know, your network immediately becomes less secure if you're having to implement different pieces in different areas in different ways, you know, because the more interconnecting interfaces you've got, the more leaky boats you're jumping into. So, yeah. And this might be a final question before we wrap up, but I guess we've heard a lot about resilience. We've heard the Prime Minister speaking recently. We've sort of been brought sharply into focus what Australia looks like in terms of its capability to, you know, protect our our interests. How important is that collaboration between research? We talked about ANU right at the beginning, Michelle, and your previous experience. Multinationals such as Verizon have huge expertise and capabilities. We've got an emerging cyber sector in our startups and scale-ups. How important is the collaboration piece and what is real success look like when those pieces are all working well together? It's just so important. Like I just, I, I, I think that, <laughs> you know, we talk, we're increasingly talking about uh, the need to be able to place greater value on intangible assets, for example. One of the greatest intangible assets that we have, you know, the, the sort of economic discussion around intangible assets points to things like software. Bigger than that, is the human brain. This is why we, t- we spend so much time talking about how to better train or best train AI so that, you know, the right kinds of ethics is going into that and all of that kind of stuff. That still comes from us as humans, you know. So placing greater economic value on collaboration to me really is the key to all of this, to find that balance that we're all trying to strike between what we need as a society to remain safe and secure but do it in such a way that we're absolutely encouraging the hell out of creativity and that problem-solving ability because we solve one problem and 16,000 others emerge, you know, in, in cyberspace. To me, collaboration really is at the heart of all of this. And the incentives for collaboration really are very contextual. What are going to be the incentives for Verizon to collaborate, for example, are going to be very different to their competitors. And this is a piece that really regulators often don't have the experience to be able to be adept at is the point of competition in the market. 
and how you could have, particularly in the telco sector and, you know, the banking and finance areas are another good example where it is very, very challenging to have two significant competitors sitting in the same room talking about whether or not they agree with one area of regulation over another because it could reveal your market advantage. Understanding that as regulators and legislators is so important. And so, that collaboration piece for me starts right at the beginning in that design phase. And we often find, in my experience, from both the industry and government perspectives, if, that if you can have as, as an inclusive process at the start of the design of these things in terms of the regulation environment and the frameworks that govern regulation, we really do then see the benefits flow, flow down around not stifling the innovation that we're all here to really kind of see. And so, you know, I think that how we drive that greater value being placed on collaboration to me comes from understanding how dynamic supply chains are now. And so you could have a Verizon that is so big internationally and has so much leverage across different market environments, how they leverage their supply chains to create value. This is where this concept of value chains come from to really understand the flexibility and the adaptability that can come from that to make the regulation process and the evolution of regulation more efficient because in this game, efficiency is not always about cost. It's actually much more about outcome. And so to keep applying these traditional approaches to the development of regulation and the enhancement of regulation is just not working. That's where we see that market friction. And MJ's reference to encryption legislation, of course, Offsider has been really significantly involved in industry's response to TOLA. TOLA has had a really interesting impact on the global discussion on encryption legislation and regulation. And we know, of course, that the government in Australia didn't get that right, but there has been a really comprehensive review undertaken of that. And the independent National Security Legislation Monitor's report into that review has now been tabled. And I encourage all listeners to have a look at it. It was a really constructive process. If we can replicate that process across all areas of regulation across technology, gosh, we'd be in such a different place to what we are now. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that if we could get the politicisation out of the regulation, we'd also, you know, there are a lot of outcomes driven from a regulatory perspective that have actually got nothing to do with innovation, collaboration, you know, success, they're driven by the social media world in which we live in, which, you know, seems to drive uh, outcomes that otherwise, you know, would not happen. So I think I agree with everything that you're saying. And, and I also, the, the collaboration is nobody can do everything. And um, the key is your partners and it's, you know, it's partners in your supply chain, it's partners in your delivery model, it's partners in collaboration itself. I mean, you know, the best outcomes come from everybody in a room, you know, doing a workout and, you know, pinging ideas off each other, which is what, you know, that's what leads to the goal, isn't it? It's, you know, there might be one eureka moment, but one person's eureka moment is just the base of, you know, something great that when everybody collaborates together. So, yeah, so I think, you know, Verizon's spends a lot of time working with its partners in order to get better outcomes, you know, customers as partners, partners as partners, and regulators as partners, because collaboration is the key. So, In terms of just sort of wrapping up this conversation, which has been fantastic, and, and thank you to both of you, because it is it is tricky subject matter. And I really appreciate you both, you know, unpicking it for us because it's not for the faint hearted and it is a, you know, a fast changing and incredibly important environment. For the next 12 and 24 months for each of you, what are the top challenges, top opportunities, and any sort of 
the salient points for any of our listeners to walk away with? So I think um, for me, it's these fantastic new technologies and trying to shoehorn them into old regulatory regimes and how we're actually going to sort of navigate our way through that. You know, I mean, 5G is amazing. And the things that machine learning and artificial intelligence, just I I love technology. Technology doesn't like me, by the way. I'm the person that consistently um, her laptop blows up and, you know, even irons don't work on me. So, but you know, I think it's a really exciting time to be part of the technology scene because it is incredible. But by the same token, you know, it's part of our job or or you can see it now with our customers and, and we as a multinational enterprise, it's also about maintaining the trust of the ecosystem in which you're working. So there is this regulation that's not really, that's pretty opaque mostly as to the atmosphere in which you're operating, but there's also getting that balance right of, as Michelle said, if you give a technology or an engineer something to solve, they'll solve it. And not necessarily with regard to things that you might need to take into account, like what are you doing with people's data? You know, where does privacy start and stop? So I think that, you know, the next 12 or 24 months is actually being able to make the most of this technology, which is available, fantastic, is going to produce amazing outcomes for the world, you know, and Australia, but making sure that we do that whilst maintaining the atmosphere of trust and and actually just sort of, I guess, keeping one eye on, you know, the greater good, but, you know, making sure that we don't throw out humanity for technology, you know, it has to be the right combination of both. So sorry, Michelle, I don't know if I sort of jumped in on top of you there. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I think it's great. It's spin off each other. Uh, you know, so OSCyber actually launched this week, Australia's first digital trust report. And within that report, we talk about the impact of digital infrastructure and the data that it carries to the economy from a revenue and jobs perspective on the light side, but also on sort of the more troubling side, what would happen to that infrastructure and data if there was a significant interruption to the availability of that infrastructure and data. But further, what the report actually talks about off the back of that is this notion of trust. And and is trust the same in cyberspace as what it is in the physical world? And of course, the answer is yes, but the way in which trust is both formed and eroded is quite different. And so I think that the next 12 to 24 months with all of these new big technologies coming down the pipeline, We're starting to see sort of some of the use cases appear. I love that with 5G, we're seeing individual use cases like the home user use cases happening at the same time as the big hands type, full whole of country type use cases, because we often don't see that with big big technologies, is that individual use case coming out at the same time. But I think we're going to start to see a reshaping of how we define trust in humanity. I really do. And so... How do we want to shape that? How do we want to influence that? We don't ever get a blank sheet of paper around this stuff because everything is always evolving. It's always changing. There's lots of human behavior though that stays the same in all of that. So I think there's great opportunities in that. Of course, there's great opportunity for maliciousness at the same time as as greatness. But as we start to really think through what we do want to do, to MJ's earlier point that Justice Kirby does say so gracefully around, you know, just because we can, does that mean that we should? I think in all of that, there is an amazing, inspired opportunity for a nation. Perhaps it could be Australia. I suspect it could be New Zealand, though, that actually just says, you know what, we're going to create that blank sheet. We're going to say that the way that regulation is generated in our countries around different cyber-physical issues, it's not fit for purpose anymore. 
compliance is not how we need to go. We need to take a risk-based approach. How are we going to reshape the regulatory process to maintain trust but become more agile in how we recognise the, the left and right of arc of a safe and secure community. And that to me makes me want to go back to law school and finish off my bar exam <laughs> because I think that that's such an amazing opportunity for leadership, but leadership that can actually reach right down into everyday people. And, you know, at the end of the day, which of the regulators in our country, but also in our part of the world are thinking through what all of this means for seven-year-olds? Because the seven-year-olds are going to be immediately engaging with these processes, but we don't ever give them the opportunity to have their voice around what they want their future to look like. So there's so much that you could unpack in that, but I think the future looks hopeful. And in fact, the pandemic, of course, has just enabled us to really bring these conversations forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and you've got to get that perfect combination of those deep thinkers having real world experience and the creativity, you know, the vision for the future and, you know, to come out with. I think um, this is a, a beautiful place to leave it with a sense of kind of ambition and opportunity to, <laughs> to make sure that uh, we are catering for the needs of those seven-year-olds in the future. And the time really is now to be able to, you know, pull together and make the changes required to make sure that it's a safe and protected place to be and, and we can also flourish with the opportunities that it presents. So I'd like to uh, draw the discussion to the close. Michelle Price, the CEO of Cyber, MJ Salia, General Counsel of Verizon. Thank you so much for the time. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so much fun. We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, Keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com.